When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's show brought to you by AG1. You've got yours there. I've got my travel packs here because I am on the road. Look, 75 convenient, comprehensive nutrition. It's, it's sev- uh, vitamins, minerals, nutrients, uh, the whole, it's whole foods. That's what it is. They get whole foods. So it's not synthesized. It's not made in the lab. It's not all additives. It's whole foods organic and they pulverize it into a powder and then they do fortify it with additional minerals and nutrients. That's where the number 75 comes up with, but it's made for everybody is the thing. So human beings need certain things, no matter where you are on the planet. These are those things. It's in a powder, mix it with water and boom, your daily requirement is met. Super easy, super simple. Go through our portal, which is athleticgreens.com slash surf. And then need essentials also, Scott, to keep you warm, to keep you pliable in the water, neatessentialsusa.com, wetsuits and outerwear. Yeah, look, um, this is the time of year, David, where people are starting to think about surf trips. And I've got my um, wet dry bag from Neat Essentials, Mm. and I've got my Neat Essentials surf trunks. So I'm ready to uh, throw stuff in the bag and... And hit the road. I know. We forget. I forget about the uh, accessories. But yeah, it pretty much, I mean, it's everything you need, right? It's all in the title. So everything you need. You do need. Yeah. You do need a backpack occasionally. It's nice to have one of the dry ones. So if you're on a boat and it gets splashed with water, everything inside, your cell phone inside is still secure. So yeah, go to neatessentialsusa.com and you'll find the best quality products on the market without any of the kind of unnecessary tags, no hang tags, no logos, none of that stuff. Cut out the middleman and deal direct. And then you just get the, you know, literally half of, it costs half of what it would be if you found it elsewhere. Um, and it's still top quality product. So neatessentialsusa.com. As we see some movement at the takeoff zone, it's Kelly Slater grabbing rail, a clean entry. This thing holding open, it spits. Uh, when it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit, spits him out. Comes out after the spit. Gets spat out of another good looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, I got Yeah, guy. Yeah, guy, David. Yeah, guy. It is Tuesday. It's March 28th, and um, this is Spit. This is the show where we talk all things surf, and um, I'm Scott Bass, and joined, of course, with David Lee Scales on the road in a hotel room somewhere. Yeah. Um, lots of news going on this week. World <laughs> Athletics. What? What are you laughing at? I, you just you just skated right over to where you are. Just like, oh yeah, okay. Northern Northern California visiting mutual friends of yours and mine. Wow, good for you. You're recording with your buddy uh, Ward Coffee this morning. Oh, cool. Tell Ward I said hello. Okay, I got one for you. Then uh, you know who I recorded with yesterday. Be interesting if you know. No, um, uh, somebody in Santa Cruz. Somebody in Santa Cruz, but it's a 
lesser known name and female. Ashley Lloyd? Nope. Not a board builder, actually. Married to a board builder, though. Or was married to a board builder. Hmm. I'm not, I don't know. I probably know this person, but I don't know. Rosemary Rymers Rice. Oh, wow. Yeah. Johnny Rice's wife. Yes, indeedy. Well, she, uh, widowed wife, actually. Exactly. Um, Exactly. So Rosemary was the very first, uh, Dewey Weber female team writer back in 1962. So she grew up in the South Bay and, um, I mean, literally, like, went to high school with all of those important icons. I mean, Bing. Um, yeah. Hap. Yeah. Like, it, it's Greg crazy. Wolf. I didn't realize they were all – I knew they were all in South Bay, like um, Pioneer, Board Builders, Epicenter, kind of in that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize they were all within a four-year age group of one another and were at the same high school together at the same time. Yeah. And so she was there, too. And, um, yeah, you know – dated i guess johnny rice in high school but then they both got married uh to somebody else and then re uh connected in the late 80s years mm. down the road and then were married for a long time after that but um really interesting just a top level female surfer at the very very beginning of everything and so had uh sponsorship deals with board builders and then surfed some contests but was always raising two kids and so some of the other women of the era had a little bit more visibility or they were in magazines more because they you know, were focused just on surfing. But even mm-hmm. for them, there was no real career path. <laughs> you know, it was just like they just yeah. liked surfing essentially is what it is. So she was top level female surfer back in the day. Hey, let's be honest. There's barely a career path today for not only women surfers, but men surfers. <laughs> that is a great, great point. Made and made that, really oh, illuminated uh, really well by Stab Magazine in that recent How Surfers Get Paid series. Um, but yeah, so Rosemary was just great. She's like 84, I think. Um, and what's interesting is mm. her grandson has taken over Johnny Rice's shaping bay at their property. Mm. So she bought this house like in 1970 and it's right at Steamer Lane. Mm-hmm. And um just a really cool Santa Cruz. The architecture in Santa Cruz is all really cool. Like a lot of interesting houses. Victorian. I feel like, yeah. Well, the the thing is, there wasn't like any big tracked developers back in the day. So everybody, I think, just bought mm-hmm. lots and built a house on the lot. But they had really cool architects working in the area at the time. Mm-hmm. So the houses are all really mm-hmm. cool. Anyway, she's got this amazing house that was built in nineteen twenty something, nineteen twenty two or something. And on the property, they had a shape. They built a shaping bay for Johnny. Her grandson has now taken over that shaping bay and his name's Jonah and um, doing super interesting boards, but super low key. Like he has an Instagram account, but hasn't posted on the account at all, but he still has 6,000 followers without any posts. (laughs) And he's connected probably through his grandfather with all the kind of important board builders around the world. So they're probably sharing information and they're aware of what he's working on. Um, he's making his own fins. He's got like these hatchet style fins that he's making quads and six fins, uh, setups for, and then, yeah, just really interesting stuff. He's going to eventually publish it on Instagram, but he, I think he wants to get a certain number of boards under his belt and a certain amount of work done before he really starts putting it out there, but it's all really interesting stuff. So up and coming shaper to look forward to. 
Well, I imagine uh, our friend Matt Warshaw over at the History of Surfing Encyclopedia of Surfing is maybe a little jealous of your interview with Johnny Rice's Rosemary, uh, his his widowed wife, because that's some deep that's some deep stuff. I'll uh, I'll send it to him. He can utilize it for building yeah. her uh, listing on the EOS because she doesn't currently have one. Oh. Um, it's tough. I was telling her this too. It's like, it's tough to find information. I'm like, do you feel slighted? You are important for, you know, uh, to surf culture in a lot of different ways for a very long time. And yet I cannot find hardly any information about you. She's like, I've never even thought about it. I don't feel slighted at all. Like I'm just grateful to have been able to surf all this time. So I'm like, all right, well, let's do the do, let's do the work now and kind of get these stories down, you know, if not on paper and in print, at least in the ether. So yeah. that's what the effort was. That's cool. Um, Who else are you going to interview up there? I mean, you're up there. I know you, you're like, shit, better, you know, pick up as many pieces of fruit that are low hanging or high hanging, frankly. Um, yeah. What about, I don't know, who do you have in mind? I mean, I can think of quite a few guys. I've got a limited amount of time and that's the problem. Um, it's really hard, believe it or not. People maybe just think it's just, you're just having a conversation. It's 90 minutes. So you could have four of those in a day. Yeah. It's not that no, at all. The, yeah. the yeah. prep and the follow-up work and like just cataloging all the hard, you know, the files on hard drives and all that stuff takes an hour <laughs> or two because the files are so big and you want to do it thoroughly because you don't want to lose the stuff. So one a day is practical. Two a day is a stretch. Three a day I've done lots of times and it's just not worth doing. So my time is a little bit spread thin, but you know who I'm going to hit up tomorrow on my drive south is one Chris Malloy. Oh, cool. That'll be very yeah. interesting. The funny thing is with Chris, um, I've messaged him. I've messaged him basically once a year, or once every other year for the last few years. And I didn't mm -hmm. have an email address, so I would just do it through Instagram. And uh, I'd open it up the following year, the Instagram message thread. And I could see that he hadn't read the one from last year because it shows you if they read or not. And so I would just delete last, I'd copy it. And then I would delete last year's message and paste the new one and then click send. So we got the same message every year for like four years, probably. And then yeah. I noticed in the last six months, he's commenting on my Instagrams. Like uh, if I post an episode with Troy Eckert, for example, he's like, Troy, that wave is so sick. So I'm like, oh, dang, I think Chris is active now. Like he's paying attention to what I'm doing. So I pull up the message and it still hasn't been read. I'm like, all right, I'm going to hit him one more time, delete that message, send the fresh one. And boom, he replied to me instantly. And he's like, oh my gosh, I would love to do it. Absolutely. When are you going to be around? And so I'm going to hit him up tomorrow, go visit him on the farm, on the ranch. And uh, it should be really good. I just think he's such an interesting figure. Like I always appreciated his surfing back in the day, but uh, his filmmaking, I just think is spectacular. You know, like there's a lot of surfers who get into filmmaking and they make a decent film because they have access to everything, but they're not necessarily like auteurs. You know what I mean? They're not necessarily like studying film and adding something new to the conversation. But I feel like Chris, um, the first thing I saw, or not the first thing, but one thing in particular was eight, 180 Degrees South, the Patagonia film that he did on surfing and sailing and climbing, I just thought was spectacular, you know, and like a real um, unique 
contribution. And so I've been tracking him ever since. And yeah, curious to hear what he's up to. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of the Malloys, all of them. And um, funny story, not funny, but when I was at Surfer, um, Chris did a movie. I think it was Chris. Was it One California Day? Was, was Chris involved in that? Or he was a subject of that. He was a subject. He was a subject, of that. subject yeah. And I wrote a review, I think, online or something. And and I was being a real dick about it. I, back, back then, I was real insecure about, you know, I was just in a bad, I just wasn't, I hadn't matured, quite frankly. Sure. And I'm not even sure I matured now. But I wrote some stuff about that was negative towards the movie. And specifically towards Chris. And um, I mean, this guy puts his heart and soul into everything he does. He's really creative. And and I, I had to call him and, and apologize, basically, and just go, you know what? I, I wasn't cool. And how can I make it right? And I'm not sure I have. I think once you cross that line with, with people, they'll, ne- they'll never forgive you, even if they, which is fine. I, you know, I've done my part. I've tried to make it right. But point is, is that... Um, you know, it, it speaks to what we talked about last week where it's like, you know, do we really like, why not lift people up instead of tearing them down? And when you tear somebody down, you're really just kind of, um, showing your hand and going, look, I'm very insecure. And, uh, and to cover this insecurity, I'm going to blast somebody, you know, which is, uh, again, it's, it's pretty immature, but I did call Chris and he was super cool about it. He's like, yeah, you know, in fact, I think what it was is, as I recall, um, I was going up to Ventura to do one of the Sacred Craft shows. I think it was the very first one where we were honoring John Bradbury. And I'm like, I'm not going up into Ventura without calling and getting the blessing from the Malloys to be up there and to do a thing, you know? I just felt like it was a respectful thing to do. And so I I, I did that. And it was all good. They were super... Like, please come up and support the surfboard builders, you know? And so that's good. That's good of him. Did he, uh, before you felt the need to make amends, had he given you flack about the review that you wrote? Yeah, I think, as I recall, and again, I don't want to, I don't recall all the specifics, but he either texted me or left a voicemail or I heard through somebody else that he was pissed. It might have been through Devin or through, um, uh, who's that great filmmaker that made that movie? Um, Jason, Jason Baffa. Yeah. Jay, it might've been through Jason Baffa. Somehow I heard and I was like, Oh shit, I I need to make this call. You know, Yeah, I need to. And, um, and you know, again, I, I don't know if we even discussed it on air, but did you watch Jason's recent series on Disney plus chasing waves? No, no, I haven't seen that. Did you know that he made a, it's a, I think we Uh, did talk about it like briefly at the end of one of the episodes. It might've been one of your um, must-see moments. Maybe so. Yeah, that sounds right. Like we talked about it coming out. It hadn't come out yet, I think. But if you get a chance, it's um, on Disney Plus. It's like an eight-part documentary series specifically about Japanese surfing. But it's really good. That's an interesting culture (laughs) and um, the way they approach surfing. Everything that the Japanese do. Yeah, is interesting because it all has this um, foundation of this like ancient culture that's just ingrained in them so deeply. Um, it's, so it's fascinating their take on everything. Well, not to stereotype, but how can you not? You know, um, if you're speaking about a culture, 
there are generalities that exist. Um, yeah. but the, the commitment to excellence, you know, in the culture and the extreme kind of, uh, or the high regard for respect to the high priority they put on respecting the other members of society, I think is, um, things that I appreciate about their culture and that we could take cues from. Yeah. It's, it's, it, cultures are fascinating in history. Like when you pull out 30,000 feet and look down on it, because the thing that I thought I'm like, and they're also quite patriarchal and I don't mean to, and then I thought oh, I better not say that, but I don't mean to say it like it's a negative thing. It's just, that's the way many cultures were, are for since the history of mankind. Yeah, totally. So anyway, yeah, no, and it's there's a rabbit hole. <laughs> I was going to say there's so many things that are just um, truisms, but yeah, wording them without the proper context, or there's not enough words you can use to fully point to the context, and so then yeah. they end up sounding yeah. offensive to people who are easily offended. I know yeah. a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about Caitlin Simmer surfs like a man, and you're like, I don't know if I could say this or not. I got some negative feedback about it, but then I also got people going. Hey, in this interview two years ago, Caitlin talked about she's modeled her surfing after Dane Reynolds. Oh, there you go. And no so, wonder. And so it it's shows. like, yeah. So, <laughs> so yes, she does surf like a man. The man happens to be named Dan, Dane Reynolds. He didn't say she surfs like all men. You know what I mean? Like, right. but it's if you're easily offended or if you're looking for re reasons to be offended, then it's come to the easy. show. We'll set you up. We'll it's take care of you. Be, it's, there's tons of reasons to be offended all day, every day. If you're I mean, we will you. make, we will set your hair on fire. You just yeah. get your, uh, get your keyboard ready and start pounding away. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, how did, Oh, before we get into the news topics, which are, you know, world athletics kind of changing the rules on transgender athletes. we got bells coming up. We have house surfers make money. Um, I wanted to hear about the auction. How did the auction end and go? Oh yeah, no, the auction was great. Um, it was a really successful auction. Um, you know, a smashing success. We we sold boards, um, investment quality boards with um, that were you know historically and culturally significant to this space for between seventy five hundred dollars and twenty four thousand dollars. So um, it was. Uh, we were very pleased. Very, very pleased. Uh, at Rosemary's house yesterday, she had a original Joe Quig up in the rafters. Really? I took That's photos cool of it. Ass. Was it a chip? Do you know? Was it a Joe Quig chip? Like one I, from the 50s? It was balsa, solid made, balsa. Yeah, it was probably a balsa chip, a Joe Quig chip. Because he was right there with Matt Kivlin and um, some other guys right there uh, at Malibu. She has you know, a Kivlin too. Huh? She has she a Kivlin too. She has a Kivlin? She has a Kivlin? Yes. Oh my God. She's got the Holy Grail. She's got everything. It's insane. And it's like all just kind of scattered about, you know, literally. If it's she like wants to move some of those items, let me know. She probably wants to pass them down and she should pass them down to her grandson. They've but, got uh, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I'll, I'll message her and let her know. I don't want to be, um, expert. No, I, yeah. And I don't, I'm like, not, Hey, like, here I come. Let me get your story here. Take a bunch of photos. Pose with me with this board. You want me to sell that board for you? No, no I I'm not in the used car business, but, um, I am an outlet, a distribution point. If she's interested, I'll, I'll drop the, uh, Drop the seed and she could do what it wants. She could fertilize yeah. it if she wants. I'd love to just see the boards. 
you know? I know. I took the photo of photos of the quig, but they were it I wasn't gonna take the board out of the rafters, you know, so the photos yeah. aren't great, but yeah. Anyways, yeah. Cool. That sounds That's cool. how that stuff gets into the auction though. You know what I mean? Like it's been the ones that you're selling have been in a similar environment oftentimes. And then they just get somebody inherits them or whatever and doesn't have the same need for it. And so, yeah. Yeah. Find a I've good been home. In many garages and homes and stuff where they open up their doors to me and I get to go in and look up into those rafters and go, Oh wow. Let's take a look at that. And yeah. it's a lot of fun. That's our history. Seen, That's our history. Have, have you ever seen that show? I think it's on the History Channel, uh, American Pickers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, that's a great show. It really Bird is. Bird Shed was in that show. They did a no whole segment. Way. Yeah, yeah. They went down to San Diego and went into Bird Surf Shed and picked a couple of killer boards. And uh, I forget which boards they picked. I want to say like a maybe a Plastic Fantastic and... Um, Something else they they picked and, you know, bought from Bird. And, of course, there was a whole show on it. In fact, you could go on YouTube, I bet, and Google it. Google Bird Surf Shed with American Pickers, and it's a whole episode. And, it's really cool. I mean, they take the boards up to the California Surf Museum, and they have the guys at the museum sort of talk about the significance of the boards. And it's pretty – it's really cool. Uh, and then did they sell those boards through their own retail? I mean, as that show goes, don't they go into these places and buy boards? And then, yeah, and then I don't know. I don't know what they did with them. I, I want to say one of the boards is on display still up at the California Surf Museum in Oceanside, but I'm not positive on that. Because I feel like if you're in the market for an old board like that, you know what's what. Bird is the resource or the retail that you would go to. So it's yeah. funny to think of American pickers going there, buying them, and then trying to sell them out of their retail space in Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Seems backwards. It does. It's super weird. I just got an email right now from somebody who says, Hey, Tom from Hermosa Beach, I have a number of old boards and I wondered if I took pictures of them, you could let me know. Uh, and then it trails off because I'm only reading the notifications. So somebody who has a bunch of old boards who's reaching wow. out. Yeah. Is it's it because of our discussion, you think? It's gotta be, yeah. Yeah. Send them my way. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's literally you, seems to be. No, no, it literally seems to be why he's reaching out is because he's yeah. heard us talk about it. So that's the way the show often works. And honestly, that's the way the Rosemary interview came together is somebody emailed me and they're just like, hey, dude, she's a neighbor of mine and she's super interesting. And you, you know, she fits exactly with what you do and you should reach out to her. So that's so cool. I'm so show from the earliest of days, I mean, I can't overstate it, but from the earliest of days, listener feedback has guided the direction of the shows. Yeah. And I've, I, the same with, you know, like, I mean, I've gotten emails from Jim Banks going, Hey, I'd, I'd love to be on your show. And I'm like, that's right. I'd love to have you, <laughs> you know, I let's know. talk. And, um, it's kind of cool. Yeah, it really is. Cool. Well, um, I'm glad the auction went well. Where do we be begin the conversation? Um, probably with the stab, how surfers get paid episode number six. Let's do it. Well, um, let's see. We, this has been a great series as it always is. Um, you and I love these. And I think, I think the general audience loves these sort of mini series documentaries that stab does, especially this one where there's this like lifting of the curtain of, of the machinery, um, the mechanics of what a sponsored pro surfers business dealings are you know like 
it's sort of a Wizard of Oz moment. And um, and of course, Stab has hit it out of the park again with with this version um, of the series. So, uh, well, this know, episode I've got some takeaways. Maybe you have something yeah. you wanted. This episode is centered around um, the idea of the aftermath, the idea of surfers. Here's what they were getting paid at the height of everything. And now we're on the downside of that. And so surfers uh, are getting paid a lot, lot less. And let's discuss, were they ever worth it? Why were they worth it? Why were they getting paid that amount at the time? What were the economic, what was the economic model essentially? And then now who in the landscape is getting paid? How are they getting paid and why? And, you know, are we sad about all the Caleb Robson and all of those guys who are at the top, top level without stickers on their boards, essentially. And, and what does that mean? How do they afford to travel the world? And, um, they give some well, examples. Look, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I was, was just going to say, say that where we're at now is, is a reflection of the, of to the technology that's, that's, um, transpired over the past two decades, really where we were when those surfers were making tons of money was, um, a, basically a magazine based, um, distribution of information and as technology grew and we got the internet and we got social media um the thing evolved the the space evolved the business space evolved to a place where it's way more watered down now it wasn't just one outlet where you had you know 15 guys making a bunch of money now you got 30 30 guys making hardly anything and the 15 guys were all getting paid by five companies. So the magazine was the, the outlet of the information, but it was funded by five brands, essentially. So that's how the magazine existed. And those five brands wanted to uh, advertise their products and they utilized athletes to do it. And so the athletes were on the back end generating all the surfing, wearing the product, being walking billboards, but they had to run through the filter of the magazine. And so the brands paying those magazines for advertising were showcasing those surfers. And those surfers resonated with you and I and the viewers of the magazine, some more than others. And then those would be the ones who ended up getting paid the most. We wanted to see Andy Irons more than other people. So Andy got a bigger contract. That was kind of the model. Uh, but yeah, the democratization of the media landscape has actually annihilated the magazines. The magazines now no longer exist. Um, and as viewers of surfing, we can access it in a lot of different ways. And so it's a much more complicated equation now for those brands to be able to showcase their products and to get kind of in front of our eyeballs. And the surfers have are still recognizing that they don't need the brands in order to access our eyeballs. So the most savvy among them are just dealing with us direct and dealing with, you know, not pigeonholing their relationships in with one brand. Basically, um, somebody gives, uh, Morgan Mawson gives the example of Alana Blanchard. He's like, look, Alana Blanchard, one of the most visible surfers today, even though She's not doing a ton of surfing, but she is one of the most visible surfers today. She basically does a post a day for 5,000 bucks. So whatever, she's got a roster of um, different brands that want them to advertise her pro their product. And it's car companies, it's skincare companies. And she recognizes, I 
don't have to have year-long contracts with five different of them and try to get a salary out of them and then do the song and dance and perform. I could just perform on a day-to-day basis for a different company. And so when you have, I guess she has 2 million followers, I think. And when you have that many followers, that equates to, you know, five to 10 to $15,000 a post. And so her social media feed is now basically just a commercial, but that's okay. You know, that's an exchange that I think her fans are willing to accept. And um, obviously it's a good living for her. So it's the new model. Yeah, that that is that was the one really cool takeaway. Uh, there was a, quite a few good takeaways from this episode, but that was the, um, the one that I thought was kind of fascinating, which is where we're at now. Um, and you just, you just broke it down perfectly. So well, it's, it's, it's kind of cool. Let me ask you this. Um, what does it mean for surfing? You know, like <clears throat> the, it's kind of interesting to think like the, he gives the example of, I think back in the day there was, if you got the paycheck from those companies, you could then travel the world and improve your surfing. I feel like there was investments once you kind of got out of your regional, out of your region, got onto the world stage, those companies are now making investments in you and you were able to utilize those investments to surf world-class waves and ultimately elevate your surfing. And that whole thing is all gone now. And it's almost the opposite because Jordy gave the example of, man, I was surfing six foot perfect point breaks every day in South Africa. And then once I was 18, got the big contract, me and Damien Farinfort moved to Newport Beach and I was surfing crappy two to three foot waves because I just had to be in the center of the industry. He's like, so I think that's kind of an interesting concept, you know? Yeah. I think that, that you asked me, what does it mean for surfing? And it doesn't mean, it, it really doesn't mean anything for surfing. In other words, you and I are going to hang up this conversation and go surfing and we're just going to go surfing. What does it mean for the way that we and others convey surfing to the mass populace through social media. I think it's going to be less about competition and who's the best at something and more about the lifestyle and what it means to all of us. You as much as uh, Dane Reynolds or the, the, you know, Felipe Toledo, Felipe Toledo or whoever, you know what I mean? So I think it's going to, um, surfing is going to be conveyed in a much more day-to-day type of uh, situation. And, and I think Alana Blanchard's a great example of that because she sort of lives like the, the lifestyle, like she's in Kauai, she's in a beautiful place with incredible scenery and great waves and sunny and warm and coconuts and a big yard. And that's what everyone wants. Mm. Like everyone doesn't want to put on a yellow Jersey and go surf Bolito in South Africa or whatever, you know what I mean? Like everyone really is going for this ideal. And I think yeah. that's what social media and the elimination of the magazines has done is, is it's, it's shifted what the ideal was. The ideal used to be, I want to be Kelly Slater. I'm 12 years old. I want to be Kelly Slater when I'm 20 and hold the, the, the trophy over my head. But now <clears throat> people are, the brands are like, I don't care about a 12 year old. I care about the 35 year old dude. That's got discretionary income. And what does that person want? Well, he wants to live with Alana Blanchard on Kauai in a beautiful yard with beautiful kids and play golf and go surfing. You know what I mean? Or play pickleball yeah. or whatever, you know? And so I think that the brands, and I mean every brand, not just surf brands, but brands around the world are like, 
what's the demo that I need to touch? And it feels like, and of course, different brands have, you know, the yoga demo wants to touch the Lana Blanchards. The surf brand wants to touch um, <clears throat> Alana's husband or, or partner, you know, because yeah. that guy's got it going on. Yeah. And um, but at the end of the day, I think they all want to reach people with money, people with of disposable course. income. Yeah. And um, well, I don't know. As you're as you're talking, I was realizing um, like Alana never really wanted to surf competition anyways, but. I haven't heard her say that, but I would, I would presume that, you know, like she didn't grow up being a competitive animal, but that was the method to become a professional surfer at her time. So she tried contests for a while, just enough to kind of elevate her profile into everybody's awareness and for her to leverage that to do what she's doing now. But contest was contests were never what she wanted to do, presumably. So I, when you are, like surfing is what you love. You're trying to make a living off of what you love. It really erodes the joy of what you love. So when she's surfing contests, it was probably not her favorite style of her favorite time with her relationship with surfing, but she did for a paycheck. She's living in an era now where one path that she could have taken was exploiting her surfing even more so on Instagram and social media. Like if she was filming herself surfing and that was the bread and butter and that's why she's getting paid that would also probably erode the joy of a free surf session. And it would put a lot of pressure on the free surf session because you need new angles, you need to do better tricks, all that. She's almost picked the perfect path, path, which is surfing adjacent. Like she just needs photos of herself on the beach holding the surfboard and the product that she's advertising. Then she puts the camera down and goes surfing. So she's designed a path to where she can make a living off of surfing adjacent, but never really erode the thing that she loved originally in the first place. So she's might be the best example because Jamie O'Brien, they interview him throughout this as well. And he's like, man, I am just so grateful. I'm 38 years old to be able to be still be making a living. You know, I remember Shane Beshin retiring when he was 25 and that was the norm. Like there was no way you were making it to 30. I'm 38 and I'm living the dream. And I'm going, I'm glad you're grateful. That's great. But you're still are acting like a 14 year old, wearing 14 year olds clothing, holding the camera in your face, like being beholden to that content machine and being on that hamster wheel comes with a certain level of anxiety and stress and responsibility and pumping out two videos a week and all of that. And so I'm not making fun. I know that he is sincerely grateful for the opportunity and all that sort of stuff. But it's real work at that point, you know, like he's fully, fully working for it as much as he would be if he was trying oh, no. to look, I, I appreciate that he appreciates that he gets to work in a space that he loves, you know, like, I think what he's saying is, this is way better than, you know, hawking cars down in IA or whatever, you know, like, he, so I, I didn't take it. I, I sense that he's stoked that he gets to get up and be creative. Yeah. He stated as much. Yeah. Completely. Um, so a couple of my takeaways from this yeah, series. Please. Um, <clears throat> more Jordy Smith and Paul Nade. In fact, Dude, me too. <laughs> I think frankly, the, the Jordy story could be its own one hour documentary. And when you get Jordy and Nade button heads, you get great TV, great content, great must watch stuff. I saw somebody on the stab commentary say, yeah. And in fact, you know, what you should do is mix in a few beers, you know, cause 
there's really no filter on Jordy. And oh, by the way, as you know, because I interviewed Jordy's dad, you got to get Jordy's dad in on this too. Like, so I'm hoping that Stab does a whole thing on the Jordy situation and what occurred and just Jordy's kind of career path. And because Jordy's dad will give you so many great on-air moments as as a as a director, uh, as a writer of this thing, you're going to just be like going, yes, this guy is nailing it for me. This is engaging. And like I said, if you think that Jordy's good on camera, wait till you get his dad on camera. It'll be um, it'll be pretty good. And then, of course, you know, you, you've got his nemesis, Paul Nade. So you get those two guys going on camera. So I'm all about more of that. I think that's that was the most compelling thing as all of us, I think, look back on it. We're like the Jordy Nade kind of butting heads thing was great. You know, I think that was episode one for listeners. <clears throat> but even when you saw him in episode six, you were like, yeah. cool, Jordy's Jordy's riffing like Jordy's at that beautiful stage in his life where he's willing to just go. This is what happened, man. And yep. there's if there's if you agree with him or don't agree with him, you love that he's being sincere and you can sense his sincerity. You can sense that he's like, I don't give a fuck. This is what I'm the, telling you. The and a lot first, of the guys in this show felt gave that off. Yeah, totally. The So kudos to the producers for putting those interview subjects in that space. Um, the very first note I made under this segment on the notes was how good is Jordy? Yeah. Because that was my takeaway too. It was like, he's he's so good. Yeah. And by the way, they open it up with him talking about Idolo and it made me feel like there's a beef between him and Idolo. He said, (laughs) I mean, truly he, he opens it up and he goes, look, Idolo is a good surfer. He's an acrobatic surfer, but it's not the type of surfing I want to watch. And they're like, he's like, look at John. John's the surfing I want to watch big open face carves, you know? And they're like, well, how much would Idolo make if he came up in the heyday, you know, when everybody was making a million dollars, how much do you think Idolo would have been getting paid? And Jordy's like, I want to pay him a cent, you know? <laughs> and Jordy might've been somewhat joking at that point, but it was crystal clear. He's not a fan of Idolo, you know? And so I, I'm like, sweet, bring it, you know? By the way, idolo has got a world title, Jordy. Yeah, I mean, and there was some there was some pretty salient commentary about, hey, that was actually Jordy's, that was Jordy's trip back then. I mean, Jordy was doing Supermans, and Jordy was like an acrobatic surfer in two thousand and two when he was, you know, signing these new contracts when he was eighteen or twenty or whatever, however old he was. Well, um, so it's kind he, of funny, but I also agree with him. Like, I would much rather watch. Jordy or John John or these guys doing massive, fully engaged rail downturns, um, you know, at, at eight foot J Bay or whatever, than than Idolo doing aerials. And it's not to take away from any of the in- incredible athleticism that Idolo's performing, and and or to say that I'm not saying that what John John is doing is more difficult. I'm not suggesting that. And that could be argued either way. My point is that's what I can relate to. And by the way, that's what I think is really great surfing is rail surfing, you know, like at some point lining up and lining up for the aerial, it's like, okay, yeah, just go be a snowboarder or skateboarder. Like why are we taking the special thing that is burying the rail away from surfing? Like, and I don't think we are. I think that John John's taking it to a place that's just next level. And, you know, I don't know. it's really interesting. It's hard to parse like, because yeah, 
Idolo and Gabe are doing insanely good surfing and incredibly difficult surfing. And why is it that there is that old school mentality, which is, look, if you're not laying it on the rail, then it's not as good or as cool or as difficult or whatever. Because the reality is it's as good, it's as cool, and it's as difficult. It's just not grounded in the history of the sport. And so when it kind of diverges from there's very hard to connect Phil Edwards and Idolo, it almost looks like two, it is two separate sports. And so it's hard to really, whereas John, John, there still is a connection, you know, like you can see the yeah. connection in the line yeah. and the approach yeah. certainly. So it's just interesting to kind of figure out what it is that we're trying to. Yeah. And I, and I love me some Idolo. Don't get me wrong. I love watching Idolo. He's exciting. I just think that, yeah, the ideal, maybe I'm just older or something, but, but here's another thing that's interesting, right? So right after Jordy says all of this stuff and he basically says, look, they're not doing fully engaged. He mentions Gabe specifically. He says, look, they're, Gabe's not doing fully engaged rail carving in the pocket downturns the way John John is. And then they cut to Gabe doing on a big wave, doing a, massive turn in a hook but if you really watch that sequence he's not engaging the rail through the turn all the way down the wave face the way john john he goes up to the top and does a fin turn. turn yeah yeah a top turn a fin turn a tail turn and at no point is there some massive swooping engaged radical 190 220 degree turn all the way through the rail the way that john john does them and the way that jordy was explaining yeah well did you think that they were utilizing that clip to prove jordy wrong or to make jordy's point for him this this is a great question and i'm not sure i don't know and i i think it doesn't matter i think most viewers saw it the way they saw it, <clears throat> which um, was either. Well, I think it was, they were trying to go, here's Gabe doing a really nice top turn as opposed yeah. to, you I, know what I mean? I like, think, I don't think they, yeah, go ahead. I think they could have chosen, or they could have, I'm sorry, could have chose, chosen. <laughs> they could have chosen um, a clip that would have made Jordy's point more easily, like, or helped Jordy make his point more clearly. And that would have been a disservice to Gabe. But I think that they picked a clip that was Gabe doing power surfing in Gabe's way. And it did make Jordy's point for him in the way that you yeah. just said, like yeah. discerning eyes could watch that and go, you are right. There is a difference between the clip they just showed of John and a clip they just showed of Gabe. And uh, yeah, it's, I've almost discounted whenever you and I talk on the show or anybody else talks about, you know, Gabe's too uh, performative or he focuses too much on airs. He doesn't have enough power. The same criticism was said in the past about Felipe. In the, I've realized, even if I don't vocalize it, those guys have a lot of power in their surfing. Certainly Felipe now, the big front, front side rail uh, gouges that he's doing are really powerful. And then I think about Gabe surfing at... Um, uh, J Bay, his backhand surfing at J Bay, just huge power carves, you know, or, or snaps, I guess. All of that is true. There's power in that surfing, but it is not what John John is doing at Margaret River, the long engaged rail turn or uh, Ethan Ewing 
transitioning seamlessly from one rail to the next and completing an entire ride with that same energy. Um, that is a different style of surfing. And I think that's what Jordy was specifically speaking to. Yeah. Look, Gabe Medina is an incredible surfer and to, we're not, I am in no way saying that he's not powerful. I'm, um, I'm just saying he's not known for that thing, which I think is the ideal right now at this point in time in surf history, which is the John John Florence massive hooking, gouging, engaged rail through the turn all the way down through the turn to the bottom of the wave again type of surfing. Um, Gabe's just different. And, and you're right. Gabe has tons of power. The funny thing about Gabe is look at his very first victory on the CT. Do you know where it was? San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. It was at San Francisco in sh shitty, meaty, grindy, eight foot chunk, you know, where you needed to match power with power. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the boards that he's riding, they're so thick in the tail and wide in the tail. They are built yeah. for power, you know, and he's, he's got strong legs, but <clears throat> as I'm trying to think about, think through what it is that we're talking about, uh, I think part of it is he's always looking down the line. Like whatever move he's doing is aiming down towards the end section of the wave. There's not a lot of presence in the moment for yeah. this one maneuver, you know? Yeah. And even when he's doing airs, it's like spinning, calculated. calculated to get down the line. It's always moving forward. That's the way that Elo is as well. Yeah. And so where you look at John, John and the commitment to the rail turn, it's just this section on this wave needs to get annihilated with this move. And I'm just going to focus. So there's, I, it's like almost a psychological or subliminal thing that's happening yeah. as the viewer is living in the moment is what it is, you know, and yeah. not looking down the line of the wave. Yeah, I agree. It kind of comes down to attaining points for the ride versus expressing oneself maybe that's what it is where yeah. where are there additional points and that's where i'm headed next is what's being conveyed through the surfing yeah exactly e even in a free surf look this this um how surfers get paid episode six uh, there's great moments of reflection um of the careers of these sponsored professional surfers as they look back on the past decade or two and and there's great insights i think from from Sears Wallace, who is an athlete manager, from Ryan Miller, who's incredible, Parco Kolohe, Pat O'Connell, Dane Reynolds, and many others, just to name a few, really great moments from the production crew as, as these talking heads make relevant commentary. Um, and I think that the production team moving forward needs to focus on surfers who communicate effectively. And there are as you know, David, one or two surfers in this piece who are just a bit spicolyish <laughs> and, and ineffective communicators. Now, maybe that's what Stab wanted to convey because the back half of this episode is all about you have to be a great communicator in this day and age or you're just going to get left by the wayside. Um, but a few of the surfers in this don't do themselves any favors. They contradict themselves. They're hypocritical. I'm not going to name names, but it's fairly well, obvious, I think, if you, if you watch it. They're the ones who aren't making a living off of surfing any longer. <laughs> Maybe. 
Maybe. It's a direct relation, direct corollary to the conversation about communication, which I thought was so salient, by the way, like to have, <clears throat> again, I think it might've been Morgan Mawson talking about Reef Macintosh, right? Yeah. He's like, yeah. Or yeah. Like Reef Macintosh. And I always wondered personally, how does he have so many stickers on his board? He's got Audi, he's got Rockstar, he's got Quicksilver on the nose and a bunch of others. Like, he's not the most visible surfer. He's not the best surfer, you know? And how is he getting paid so much more than all these other great surfers? And Morgan nails it. I, I, again, I think it was Morgan. It might've been Duma. It might've been Duma, yeah, it might actually, have been now that Duma, I know. Yeah, yeah. It was Duma. He, he's like, Reef talked to his sponsors every single day. He'd get them on a two-minute conversation on the phone, and he might be talking about, hey, man, I love the board shorts, or whatever the product was, or it might not be uh, about the product at all. It was just relationship building. And then he would drop off a six-pack or a case of beers when he showed up, always, you know? So when it came time for the executives to make a decision about who gets cut and who stays, Reef always stayed because Reef's family, you know? Like, Reef, I talk to him every day. Like, let's take care of this guy even when he wasn't generating as much surf content for the brand. So I thought that was really, it was a great example. But then on the, on the kind of top end of that scale is Mick Fanning. And it's like Mick always showed up early to every autograph signing, always stayed late. He, which is a great trait of any employee in any environment, in an office space or whatever, right? So Mick's applying professionalism to surfing. And they gave an example, Sam McIntosh gave an example of stab in the, they were hosting a stab in the dark party premiere and Mick had an obligation in the morning, but he was partying hard at night and keeping the party going. Cause he saw everybody's having a good time. They're all there for him. He wants them to have a good time. So he's continuing the party. Like let's get another round of drinks and all of his management and everybody goes, dude, you got this obligation in the morning. Are you sure you want to stay? Oh no, I'm, I'm good, man. Stayed until 2 a.m pouring drinks, having a blast, hosting the party. And the next morning, everybody wakes up all foggy, like, oh no, I wonder if Mick made it to his appointment. Like, uh, where's the coffee? Turns on the TV, there's Mick, fully lit, good morning Australia, or whatever the morning show is, early in the AM. He's fully dressed, fully lucid, fully sober, explaining. <laughs> Wait a minute. I don't know if he's fully sober. There might have been a... A bloodshed eyeball that I noticed, but yeah, he, he was, he was coherent for sure. He was delivering all the talking points for the reason exactly. why he was on the morning show, you yeah. know? And no Sam's doubt. like, Sam's just like, holy cow, this guy is legit. Like he, so much of what he was doing last night wasn't Mick letting loose and having a good time. It was Mick hosting this party for everyone else so that they had a good time. And what he's doing this morning on the morning show is Mick honoring his obligations to the brands and to the stab in the dark project and all of it, you know, he's just yeah. fully, he's fully, uh, professional. So yeah, no, I totally which is agree. Why he makes the most money, you know, it's funny. Cause I was, I was thinking about Kolohe, the Kolohe thing speaks to what you're talking about too, which is being a great communicator and also, you know, sh suiting up and showing up with sincerity. <laughs> And, and what we're seeing, and you mentioned it with Alana, we're seeing this transition or the transition has already occurred where guys like Kaloe and Dane Reynolds, they see themselves not just as, okay, I'm a great surfer, but now they're like, hey, I'm more than that. In fact, I'm probably more valuable to these brands as agents of change through content creation for the next generation. Because you sense that O'Neill and Kaloe were like, 
like O'Neill's like, Chloe's an insane surfer. This is great. But he's also got connections with a bunch of young surfers that we get just as a, just because Kolohe is with us, right? It's this manifestation of Kolohe creating really great content packages. I'm doing a road trip tour to surf shops. Um, And I think what I get from this is that Kolohe, like the light went on. He's like, I'm much more than just a guy that can win heats. Yeah. You know, like now I'm almost a producer. Well, you know, he wins heats. Um, (laughs) But I think what these surfers need to do is put themselves uh, and understand the goals of these brands, understand the goals of O'Neill and accommodate them. And if I was a marketing manager at these brands, I would require my sponsored athletes to be at my year to year marketing managing uh, meetings, you know, my, where I'm like going, okay, here's what our marketing looks like this year. Here's our messaging. This is the graphics that are going to be on it. This is what we're trying to convey. Like if you're a sponsored surfer, you should be able to, there's going to be three bullet points that you need to be able to nail. If the marketing manager comes up to you and quizzes you, like what's our message, you know, like, yeah. and, and, you know, at the very least, I think that, you should, if you're a sponsored surfer, you need a one-on-one meeting with the marketing manager so that you fully understand the package. Um, and well, and, yeah, as they're think the relationships that they are fostering with Chloe O'Neill and Chloe specifically, it's an extension and a better version of when Hurley would have yes. Rob Machado, who's way off tour, still as kind of a, a lifelong ambassador and. By the way, Rabbit still like somehow rocking the the Hurley stickers. Barton Lynch still rocking the Hurley stickers. You know, like those guys were part, they were the ambassador team for Hurley for the exact reason that you're talking about is these guys have street cred. I feel like Hurley was doing it a little bit altruistically where these are important people to the surf world and I want to make sure they're continuing to get a paycheck. Like we just want to support <laughs> rabbit and BL no matter what, you yeah, know? Yeah. And so I, I love that about them at the time, but also recognizing that they do have clout that the generation below them is paying attention to. And so let's kind of get them psyched so that they, we benefit from some of that shine, you know, as part of the strategy. And so Kaloe, it's a little bit more strategic because he's still on tour, but it is, I think with that in mind, which is this could be an ambassador program post tour into retirement. And we're not going to necessarily, he's not going to be necessarily a team manager and go like, or a sales rep or go down that path, but there, he can still be this, what Tom Curran is to rip curl to this day, you know? Yeah. Yeah, focal point for the brand and and O'Neill and, and frankly any brand really loves these these road trip bus tours with hero pro surfers and they made a movie and there's going to be autographs and a food hangout. I mean that's a that's kind of marketing one hundred and one really. Um, but why is it so important? The retailers uh, who are buying the product from O'Neill they get special attention from this. The retailers are like you know like how do and their customers get special attention. The young groms at the store get special attention. The parents bring the young groms to the store. Now store loyalty is being created. And Chloe, I think, understands this. And you mentioned Hurley, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, they've been doing this uh, with Rob Machado for years. Lost does this. Frankly, the East Coast road trip, it's tried and true. It's its not something that's new. Um, and in fact, this, this concept, I remember as a young surf shop employee in Encinitas, 
in the early 80s, I remember Shane Horan and Wes Lane and Tom Carroll showing up with Rip Curl and and doing like a surf shop tour and signing autographs and shaking hands with the guys that were selling the product, us, the, the employees at the store. And, um, and as I recall, I'm pretty sure Don Craig was the guy at Rip Curl at the time that organized that tour. But my point is, is that those have been happening forever. And they're, like I say, it's marketing 101. Let's get our ambassadors in front of the people and get some store loyalty so that when I go to Surf Expo, that guy's going to buy a bunch of product from me because he knows that I did him right last year. Yeah. And um, it's easy to figure out. I think there are, of course, more modern strategies now, David, um, involving social media and, 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 and just how to employ that and represent the brand that way. Um, but I, I think as a pro surfer, you have to ask yourself, how do I leverage not only my abilities in the water, but my connections with younger pro surfers, my understanding of the social media landscape, uh, my ability to adapt as that social media landscape is changing here. And at the end of the day, how do I send, how do I help O'Neill sell product? Yeah. That's the question you got to be asking and you have to have the answer to it too. Yeah. That's certainly the question if you want to continue to get paid. And yeah. what's interesting an interesting point that Evan Slater made that flew in the face of all of this is we're solving for the equation of how do you get paid? Well, the answer to every one of those questions becomes um, this sanitized version of the act of surfing itself and really a facsimile of the act of surfing itself. And when you're getting paid millions of dollars, well, you're doing more of the facsimile than you're doing the thing itself. And so it's kind of an interesting snowball that gains and develops because you want to still be enjoying surf. You still want to be surfing good waves and focusing on improving your surfing and enjoying surfing and all that sort of stuff. But as soon as you try to represent what that means and what that is and put it into words, put it into marketing, put it into graphics, it really does start to erode the original joy. And so I think the way that Evan put it was like, the more sanitary the training regimen, you know, the less interesting the act itself is. And so if you are at a um, performance academy, jumping on a trampoline to improve your aerials, ultimately the aerial that you do in the water will be noticeably different than the one who learned how to do airs in waves and focused on that and then busted out, you know, an air. Somehow the end product is noticeably different to the viewer. And that's a world that we're living in right now. Like Stab Magazine posted this clip yesterday of this Beijing born, uh, I guess she's a professional snowboarder. She's based out of Colorado. Her name's Patty Zhao, Z-H-O-U. And it was a rip, a clip of her surfing in the Waco wave pool. And she's doing crazy airs, like massive airs, crazy rotations. And I noticed Matt Biolis's comment at the in the comment section said, yeah, and she's never touched salt water, which I don't know if it's true or maybe it's based in truth and it's just an exaggeration. But the reality is she's from Beijing. She lives in Colorado and she's a professional snowboarder who learned how to stand on a board and rotate and do airs. And so they were able to translate that to a wave pool. She was 10 years old. She's 11 now, but the clip from her in the wave pool was she was 10 years old and she's doing these crazy airs. 
you know? And so yeah, well, is, is the, is the air what we want as a viewer? Is that all that it is? We just want an air or do we want surfing, you know, well, like, and the what's thing, the difference? Like, I, that translates when the end product, the, the end goal is to score points. In other words, if you're a 10 year old basketball prodigy from China and all of a sudden you're dunking when you're 10 years old and you're scoring your own points, when you dunk, you score two points, then yeah, everyone's all in. But because surfing and any sport that's subjective, uh, you're not scoring your own points. You're being judged on what you do. This will never translate. I'm already out on this yeah. girl. I, me personally, I'm like, I don't care. I'd much rather see uh, Kolohe drive down to deep mainland Mexico with nobody and score insane barrels, you know, with Brian Conley. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I don't care about, and I, and I think, and I don't obviously don't speak for the masses, but I think what Evan is speaking to is authenticity and sincerity. And, uh, you know, I just think that lacks when it's like, look, we're grooming our child to be the next whoever, Aaron yeah. Brooks. We want our kid to be better than Aaron Brooks. It's right. like, nobody cares because well, you're not they, scoring points. You're being judged eventually, subjectively. And Well, that's what's yeah. interesting with this new model that we're discussing is that the parents are looking at it. They're not interested in a road trip to mainland Mexico. That was, it was never about that. It was never about connecting with nature. It was never, you know, it was only ever about, do we want to send our kid to school and pay all this money and then send her to graduate school? And then she becomes a lawyer, you know, and only makes, you know, not, she makes a good living, but not like going to get rich or whatever. Or, look at this. She can have a YouTube channel about surfing and she could be making $10,000 a post, you know, like that's a quicker path. And so that's what this nexus that we're discussing is right now is surfing can be in the near future and maybe already is nothing to do with connecting with nature. It can just be completely art. It could be a facsimile of the thing where you train in a studio, you go into the wave pool, you hit your marks. Maybe you go into the ocean occasionally and you hit your marks in the ocean, but it's not about that. You know, it's not about surfing anymore. Yeah. Well, you know what we need? We need the greatest surf movie in the universe or something. Like that. I agree. <laughs> How good does it look? It looks pretty good. I got to admit. And I, I went into it with a raised eyebrow and then I watched it. I was like, oh, it was kind of funny. Amazing, actually. Hey, um, I'm take a quick break. Okay, go for it. All right, Scott, and realwatersports.com for any and all surfboard and surfboard accessory needs. They've got it all. It's all in one spot. They've simplified it. They get, everything's there, and they ship it to you no matter where you are in the world. What else do you want? You really don't need anything other than real water sports. You go online, you buy a new board, you buy a wetsuit, you buy a leash, you buy a set of fins, um, maybe you get a board bag. Boom, delivered to your house and away you go. All you need is an Uber to the airport. <laughs> you know what's funny is we talk about them as it relates to surfing. They didn't even get in from a surfing angle. Their uh, trip was into kite surfing. They've got a huge portion of their business, which is like foiling. So anything you need for any water sport, it's real water sports, obviously. But I mean, if you, we, you and I have talked about getting into foiling in the past. And we just I'm very close. I almost got re I almost got re some friends of mine. You know Kyle Knox? Yeah. He was a former pro surfer from San Diego. He's a buddy of mine and I see him out, out foiling and I'm like, dude, 
and he's he's got me convinced. Of course, the beautiful thing is, like three or four years ago when we were talking about this, guess what? We've had three or four years of technological breakthrough, so it's much easier now than it was four years ago. Yeah, well, Real Water Sports has all of that stuff, and they even bundle it into a kit, like a beginner kit. If you're getting into it, just buy this kit. It's not the most expensive version, but it's exactly what you need to get started. So it's yeah. all available on realwatersports.com. Go and check them out. They're great partners of the show. We love them. So Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, Real Water Sports. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Let me finish up real quick with the, my final thought. Okay. Is, is that the stab in the dark, uh, how surfers are paid, how pro surfers are paid episode six I give it a nine and a half out of 10. Some great stuff from Stab as usual. My constructive criticism, I've already mentioned. More Mark Matthews, more Ryan Miller, more Jamie Tierney, more Jamie O'Brien, more McFanning. But there's no need to have ineffective communicators when we have a trove of really great ones available. So bring back the Sears Wallaces, the Dumas, the Pat O'Connells. All of those guys and gals were great. Um, but just a few of the people were kind of cringeworthy. And frankly, I was embarrassed for them, especially in contrast with the other people that were on camera. Fair enough. I think um, they can do a deducive math to figure out who the two people are that you were talking about without mentioning their names. <laughs> Deductive math, I guess, is what it would be. Um, well, moving on in just it's worth it's a news story this week that relates uh, will eventually relate to surfing, which is world athletic votes to exclude transgender women athletes. So the WSL has kind of based their policy on uh, what was happening kind of through the IOC for the Olympics. And so now world athletics has banned transgender women from competing in elite female competitions. If they have gone through male puberty the sports governing body said on Thursday, the council has voted to tighten restrictions on athletes with differences in sexual development, DSD, 
cutting the maximum amount of plasma testosterone for athletes in half from 2.5 nanomoles per liter to uh, from five. So World Athletics President Sebastian Coe told a news conference that the, de- the decision to exclude transgender women was based on, quote, on an overarching need to protect the female category, end quote. So that was news this week. It'll be interesting to see how, if the WSL adjusts their policy henceforth. Yeah, I, you know, as you mentioned, I believe uh, the WSL is following the International Olympic Committee guidelines on transgender. Um, I'm pretty sure that there's a case coming up before the Supreme Court regarding this situation. I think it's like the state of Connecticut or something is involved. Um, Let me see if I can find it. But anyway, I I don't know what to say other than we just have to, we're in a wait and see period on this. And, you know, I think, I think we just kind of have to see how it goes, but it's, it's just, it's ever changing. It's always evolving. Um, but I don't know, it, you know, well, it seemed like it, it was always evolving in one direction and this recent vote feels like an adjustment back to, um, yeah, no, it does, and, but it's a different organization, you know, like you've got different organizations. I think the world athletic council, is that what it is? I think they're world more athletics. specific to track and field. Okay. And I think in track and field, there's some major issues regarding transgender women, women starting to just absolutely dominate the record books. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, again, I'm waving the naive flag. I'm waving the ignorant flag. My heart tells me that, um, that there should just be a transgender division. And of course the, the argument to that is, well, there aren't enough transgender people to fill out a division one and two, that we feel now that we're being singled out as it's almost like the special Olympics. These are the two arguments that they make. And one, if there aren't enough people to fill out the division, then why are we even like, we don't, we're not, we shouldn't even be having this conversation. Like there's, you're just, there's just not enough of, of this category to even bring this up. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's hard. I know it's real hard on the transgender community because, um, you know, they, they feel like there's a spotlight put on them that, that, that shouldn't be put on them. But, um, look, I think if you, um, are so driven that you decide to change your sex, um, you're going to have a spotlight put on you, you know, and it's unfortunate because I know that probably internally, you, this is how you feel you need to that this is who you are, that you're not this sex or the other sex. And, um, and it's just, you know, basically it's hard unless you've experienced it. I just can't sit here with any sort of, um, authority and and speak to it. I I don't know what it feels like, you know, so, um, it's tough. Yep. Well, uh, we'll see what happens with the WSL and if, they issue an apology to Bethany Hamilton if and when they adjust their their policy, which almost inevitably I feel like they will. Um, and as it relates to the WSL, the Bells event is starting next week. I think it's April 4th. Do you want to make yeah. any predictions? Or I know we're out of survival league at this point, but who would you, be, who would you put on your team if you could? Uh, 
Kelly's an interesting one. If you hadn't picked Kelly yet, Kelly's an interesting one at Bells because of the Olympic qualification that's on the line, because of the cut line, because of his history at Bells. And because, as we mentioned last time, it's not really an aerial wave. Uh, I know Felipe's done well there when it was small and done some aerials on the outside section, but um, it's basically, you know, two or three hacks and then hop through to the inside bang section. And uh, I think Kelly... You know, that equalizes everything for him. And so I think he could still have a run at least through the round of 32. Kelly's my, or I'm sorry, John John's my pick. Fair enough. Now I've looked at the window that it doesn't look, you know, this is the problem with the W that you and I talk about that the WSL has. If you look at the window, guess what? There's like two and a half days that are, I guess you could say would be good contestable days where it's like four to five feet and the winds are right. Out of the 10 days, there's two and a half days. And it's funny, I went to I went to Snapper for the same period of time. There's two and a half days in that period from April 4th to April 14th. And I went to Margaret River, there's three days from April 4th to April 14th. And my point is, is that I think in 10 days, no matter where you are around the world, you're only going to get two and a half days of waves that the world's best surfers deserve to be in. And um, I think as we go through the year this year, I'll look at other spots during the next waiting period. For instance, at Margaret River, when we go there, I'll look at Bells and I'll look at at, uh, at some other spot and we'll determine, you know, are there just two and a half days in any 10 day period throughout the world, wherever you go, there's probably only two and a half days that are worthy of the world's best surfers. So that means that you have to cut down the field so that you can put those best surfers in those waves. Say it again for the people in the back, Scott. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> waves we, have, we have not only, yes, you're nailing it, but we have a huge data set of past events. And in fact, we have three events this year already where they got one day of good competition, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, we know already, we know this to be true. Earth has spoken and Earth has told <laughs> us what it's delivering. And it's so... Uh, uh, hard-headed to try to generate this massive bureaucratic machine that you are going to try to impose on the earth. And we're going to run our events this, this way based on archaic thinking, based on rules and regulations that never really worked that well in the first place and needed to be kind of adjusted a long time ago. And we're just going to keep doing it this way because this is what we do is so, so hard-headed. So yes, earth has spoken, trust earth. And the other thing too, is like, when I think back on like Tavarua, the Tavarua event, if you only get two and a half days of, of barely contestable surf at restaurants or cloud break, it's pretty digestible for you and I as end users to go, okay, cool. It's four foot cloud break. I'll actually watch this. It's blue and sunny and offshore and beautiful. But when it's like that at Brazil or Portugal, wet Margaret River or wherever, it's just, you know, it's not, not a good. Yeah, it's well, it's not entertaining and it's a no. complete disservice to the athletes. But I will say this. I'm looking forward to Bells. I'm looking forward to Bells. I, it actually looks like the the maybe the sixth, seventh and eighth of that first weekend in at Bells <laughs> in April. Yeah. Could be 
could be fun and contestable and hopefully they won't be going through the, you know, the elimination heats for that. Right. Um, well, enjoy <laughs> I can tell you're excited. I'm not excited until I see the exact forecast and, but, yeah. um, funny closing thought on Jordy Smith and how surfers make money is he's talking about some young kid came up and was asking for advice. Who's like on the pro track to be a, yeah. a CT level surfer. And they were asking advice. And Jordy said, look, in hindsight, I should not have joined the tour until I was 22. Just focus on your surfing and uh, get really good at surfing and then figure out how to adapt that to the tour. But don't come on tour prematurely. And he goes, look, I was surfing epic right-hand point breaks in in uh, South Africa. The first time I went left was in Tahiti in a heat. <laughs> <laughs> So and again, great. I think that might have been an exaggeration, but it's probably based in the truth, you know, which was just like he wasn't, he was a pro surfer getting paid millions of dollars based on what he had done in South Africa. And now he needs to figure out how to go left. <laughs> well, he's done well for himself. I'm, I'm more of Jordy fan than I've ever been in my life. Jordy, Jordy and Bells. Let's go, Jordy. <laughs> he's who I'm betting on I agree with you I'm a huge fan he's so good I am I am alright well look it's been a good show um, until next week David when we will be thinking about bells in, in earnest adios and aloha climbing up on Salisbury Hill I could see the city light Keep inside, inside.